0: Hi, my name is Sanjeev Mohan. I am a founder and principal at Sanjmo. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Brian T. O'Neill on his Experiencing Data podcast.
1: You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome
2: back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. I have Sanjeev Mohan on the line today, and you have helped co-author a book called Data Products for Dummies. So congrats on your book, first of all. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So who are the dummies?
0: You know, dummies. Actually, it's a, it's a great question.
2: I love those books, by the way. I'm not. I'm not digging I you. I actually loved those books when I was a younger. Like I read them all the time. Like get lots of knowledge on a bunch of different things in a short amount of time.
0: Like <laughs> absolutely. In fact, the whole premise of a dummy's book is to write it in a very easy to read parable kind of a format, as opposed to to you know like uh, you know how it is. You write a document. And then you send it to the editing team, and they just rip it apart. But everything comes back so arcane, and uh, you know. But it's it's grammatically correct, you know. So dummies. So to answer your question, who are dummies? Dummies. It sounds a bit derogatory, but uh, today dummies are we all dummies because we all trying to learn how how to navigate in this supercharged, fast-moving world of data technology in general.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the book's Data Products for Dummies. Yes. I wanted to dig into this this topic. Obviously, we dig into it a lot on this show, particularly from kind of the, the product and the design kind of areas that I usually talk to on the show. And I'm very much skewed towards the business side of this and how do we create meaningful solutions that impact people's lives such that you then get, business value, because you're having an impact on your employees or your coworkers if you're doing an internal data product management or your customers, if you're doing, you know, SaaS and and, and commercial product management. So I think in order to have that conversation, I have to ask you what a data product is in your definition, because as you know, we, we had a meta conversation about definitions when we when we first talked, and there's a lot of different ones out there. So just to ground this conversation, can you give a short Definition of what a data product is to use so we can just have that.
0: Brian, the way I have explained data products is that there is a business definition and then there's a technical definition. Technical definition is actually quite easy, so let me get it out of the way. Technically, a data product is not anything different than maybe a table or maybe like a single table, materialized view, machine learning model a report or a dashboard. That's how a data product manifests itself. Nothing different. The difference arises on the business side. The very first criteria of a data product is that it has some business value. If it is just a temporary table that you're going to join and produce some results, it is not a data product. That's the first thing. So it must have a specific defined business value. The second thing is that it is built with the best product management concept, not project. And uh, a product management concept says that you define its attributes, you version control a product, like an iPhone. There's a new iPhone out every year, a new version number with its own specs. And at some point we retire the old versions. How many times have you retired stuff in the data space? Not that often. You know, so we we keep building stuff. We've got old version stuff lying around. So the idea of building a data product is that you get like a container, a self-contained consumable piece of an artifact that has some contract. You can trust it. It's reusable. It's easy to discover. So those are some really important pieces. And if you go down this path of a data product, it can be hugely beneficial because for the first time ever in the history of data management, we have a way to ascribe value to our investment in data, measure it, and then say, you know, this is the productivity of our developers. We produce so many data products. We have a cadence here. We have so many users. This is how much they are using it. And eventually you can start monetizing it if you want, although not necessarily you have to monetize a data product. You can say that, you know, now that I've moved to data product, I've reduced my defect count. I have reduced the time for claim processing from 10 days to five days. Instant ROI. You can calculate it and and you can subscribe it to the data product.
2: Sure. So question on this, like this business value thing. So like you mentioned a potential benefit here is accelerated delivery. Yes. Because you're using some kind of product management principles. Right. I guess one thing that I wonder about is if we don't do this work right, aren't we just putting crap out faster? And I'm sorry to say that, but but for 20 plus years, the track record of, of a lot of analytics and, and machine learning and AI now, the track record, particularly in large enterprises, is not great. We keep throwing money at yet another platform, yet another thing that's gonna save the day. Sometimes it's a new label for it. Let's call it big data now, whatever that. I don't even know what that means. How is this gonna be different? Even if we package it right and it's self-contained and it's it has a contract and SLAs or you know, all this stuff, like. If it's not designed with a purpose, with a person in mind, a customer in mind and a knowledge of what their problems and pains are, aren't we just putting out the old stuff faster, but maybe more secure and it's in a catalog now and it's searchable. But at that last, what I call the last mile, when the human interfaces with this solution, assuming it has a user interface, and that's mostly what we talk about in this show is something that's we're at the last mile where a user or customer is going to use it. How do we not end up just doing that? Because, you know, and, and I've heard like in the community, you know, I launched a community and and I've heard some of this before, which is kind of this like a lot of, you know quote, a lot of places are just slapping this word data product on the old thing. And then they think that they're doing this or they're changing job titles and they're hoping to get the value of it because it, so- it sounds better, just like agile sounds better. But if you just follow the recipes of agile and you don't follow the principles which is really about change. It's not about speed. You don't get the value just following the, the step-by-step instructions if you're not embracing the principle. So I'm just kind of curious about your take about does this really fix the underlying problem of it's a so- solution to a problem that doesn't exist or, or a different problem that they actually don't have or care about right now. Talk to me about that piece.
0: Yeah. So there are some, things we are doing differently this time, that are distinctively game-changing in my opinion. It sounds like, you know, I'm sold on it. So I see everything from a very rosy tinted glasses. But the thing is that there are two important changes. One is organizational and the second is accountability. In the past, if I don't change anything and I just, you know, slap a label of data product on a dashboard that my CFO uses, the CFO comes to the office, he or she finds out that some of these numbers don't make sense. So they have this intuitive feeling, but they cannot pin it down. They they know that you know the that something got went missing at night in a nightly bad job because these numbers are, are not making sense. Who does that CFO talk to? There is no single person they can talk to because they they call some guy who's responsible for building the dashboard. The guy says, well, I don't know. I only used Sigma for this, but my DBT engineer was responsible for data transformation. OK, let's go talk to the DBT guy. The DBT guy said, well, I don't know. It's the, I just took the jobs that came off of Fivetran. Okay, let's talk to the five-trend guy. The guy said, Well, I don't know. It came from SAP. Go talk to the SAP DBA. You see, there's so.
2: You sound like you're in Washington, D.C., like with the acronyms okay, or the yeah. military. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. In my world, these would be like, you know, just a done deal. Like, sorry. <laughs> So the point that that I'm trying to make is that, that, yes, you may slap a label of data product on existing artifacts. It does not make it a data product because there's no sense of accountability in a data product. Because we are following product management best practices, there must be a data product owner or a data product manager. There's a single person. Second big change is that this person sits on the business side not in the central IT, which is overwhelmed. See, I'm an IT guy, so I can take pot shots on myself and my colleagues. Let's say I work for a pharma company and I'm in, in IT and I get some dump of data with some requirements of creating a data warehouse. I'm looking at the data. It has pharma codes, clinical trial codes, some DNA data and RNA data. I have no clue what all that means because I'm a... Hotshot, Python, Scala, Spark developer. So I'm just going to do what I have to do. But in the true data product environment, I'm taking this task, offloading it from a central data engineering team into the domain. Now in the domain, people know what these things mean. So that organizational shift and then having a data product owner who's responsible for life cycle and is singularly responsible to answer if there are any defects is what makes data products different from the traditional approach we had to building analytics.
2: I don't think I remember seeing this in the book. Are you saying then that like, let's say you have a data product manager in charge of like, I don't know, increasing sales closure rate or or reducing wasted time, calling the wrong people in the sales department. Does this mean this person's now staffed in the sales organization?
0: Yes, that it means. And and by the way, I think what you're alluding to has been a very sore point. A lot of these domains like salespeople are like, I'm sorry, what do you mean? We are, we are responsible for writing the code? No, uh, we've never done that. We are not even trained. We don't even understand the software development life cycle. So how is this going to happen? So there will be a pushback. And the way we get over it is sales team may not be ready to take on the ownership. So there is a central team that the goal of the central team is to increase this, bring in the data culture, increase this literacy on the concept of data products. So the central team will say, don't worry sales team, I'll be your representative. I will put a person from my team, a dotted line to the sales team to help you build this, but we will take the ownership. The idea being that over a period of time, the sales team will come up to speed and say, yes, we are now getting faster turnaround time and higher quality. We own this, the outcomes. So we are now trained, maybe it'll take six months, maybe it'll take one year or even longer. Now the sales team is self-sufficient. They go on to build their data products. The central COE, now a center of excellence, goes to supply chain team. So, So you sort of, you divide and conquer and you get each team bought into this concept of data products. And the only way they'll get bought on is if they start seeing a significant increase in productivity. So that's the mechanism of how we are propagating data products within organizations and departments that are not yet ready to embrace it.
2: Right. So this, you called productivity. So if we, if we talk about this in terms of like There's literally like a department head and there's a bunch of people, you know, individual contributors, whether we can use the sales example. From a design and classic product management standpoint, we would think about this in terms of like making somebody's life better. It's easier for me to do sales. I close stuff faster. I was able to command a higher price. So my margin, so my commission went up or whatever. I guess one thing I didn't see in the book, and it's, I, I think if you're looking for a lot of the, particularly like a technical person that wants to step into this more business-facing product management role you understand all the facets of you know slas and, and, and engineering and the modeling piece and pipelines and all this kind of stuff but the low adoption monster has been around a long time in the data product space and i'm wondering how does any of this data product stuff make that part better making the salesperson's life better because we we could follow all these practices and still the sales team's like i don't want to put information in the crm because i was just i can't remember i heard this yesterday it's just like it's gonna get someone was telling me this maybe it was karen and the if you're listening in the dplc but like i don't want to put stuff in there because it's going to get used against me because some ai model eventually is, is going to replace me so i have an incentive not to use this thing in the first place we're now in human factors problems territory this is where i think so much of the problem lies and i and i do believe product management has a lot to offer here but only if we're spending an inordinate amount of time in the last milepiece that the the problem definition phase the spending time with in this case sales people and all of that and i'm i'm just curious if you think how do you balance all the time needed now to package to make it findable to make it self-contained and all of this those things are Kind of easy to do if you're technical because you can follow like a plan like here's a step-by-step way to go about doing that but the other stuff is like really fuzzy and tough every team is different every sales team i mean they're yes they're still selling stuff they, they probably have a commission they care about getting a high price there, there's some dynamics that will be the same probably across any sales team but the culture is different and and so much of that i feel like is is still missing we, we do everything up until that part but we don't that last mile piece is where Good work goes to die so much of the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, Brian, the point you raised and what Karen had raised about the AI piece and will it replace my job? That's a much broader topic and this is slightly orthogonal to what we are discussing. So I I don't want to address that in this question. Happy to talk more about it. What I want to address is what is the situation today for the salesperson to up level their game and have higher margin sales? How do they do it? They don't even have the tools. I know I talk to people all the time, even banks like JPMorgan Chase, where you know a financial advisor is trying to sell more services. It's a maddening situation where you have to go to five different systems, you have to together the data. You don't even know if the quality is good enough. A system goes down. Now you have to call back-end. Literally, I know this for a fact. You have to call back-end support for that. And then you don't know how current that data is because there's no contract. You don't know what you... It's an ocean of disconnected systems. So data products are actually doing a lot of this work, and I agree with with a lot of what you said, there's a lot of upfront work that needs to go, go on before the salesperson is enabled to use a data product. So that work has to be done, but you put in that work, you say, you know, every, this data product is refreshed every 24 hours or every two minutes, whatever it is. I, as a salesperson, now have a window into what I'm dealing with, and let's say tomorrow my company decides to buy HubSpot and now they're putting in information about events and who attended the events. A salesperson wants to know, did my prospects attend this event? How in the world are they going to get this information? These are not technical people. So now what happens is if you're a salesperson, you can make a request and you can say, look, now that we have HubSpot, I want my data product to be enhanced with this new integration, new data elements. So the data product owner says, okay, your requirements are are well taken. We will go design the data product, add in the new HubSpot and version 3.7 will be launched on this day and it's backward compatible. So if you've written any programs, don't worry about it. The previous versions will eventually be retired. As a salesperson, I now am focused on the output, the outcomes. I'm not focused on, can I trust it? Is it secure? You know, is it fresh data? I don't have to worry about that because it's in the document, in the catalog. I can read it because there's a contract. I can start focusing and trusting a data product. My ease of use goes up and the user experience is higher. So I I hope this
2: makes sense. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I mean, one of the things I noticed in the book, and I was kind of curious, so you mentioned user experience here. Yeah. This came up several times in the book, and I'm curious whose job is it in the data product context to design or facilitate the user experience to happen? Where does that role reside?
0: I wrote an article called, what exactly is a data Product" on uh, my Medium blog on a Friday. On the weekend, I uh, flew to Gartner Data and Analytics Summit in Orlando. This was in March of this year, 2023. And I was shocked by Wednesday at 85,000 hits. On such a a techie topic, I would never expect such a pent-up demand. In that article, I talk about, let's say you want to go buy cereal. So cinnamon toast crunch is the example I use. Solid example. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> I concur. So I can go to a store that has it in a bin. You know, you scoop it out into your own reusable bag. And- Where is this store? I want to go. <laughs> is it the big
2: Costco shovel? That's no, like- it's like <laughs> Sprout, you know.
0: So... <laughs> Okay, so that is one way. But how do we buy it? We buy the box. The box is from the manufacturer. It has all the nutritional content. It has the best before date. So I know when it's going to expire. It has uh, maybe some recipes on it. So the producer is the one that is defining the quality. Because, see, with data product, same idea for a data product. The thing is that the producer does not know who the consumers are like Kellogg's or General mail doesn't know, they don't know me, right? They know that, you know, there's a general class of consumers. Now in data products, it's not that amorphous. We do know who our customers are, but we may have customers of a data product that we, we don't even know exist. So a new person gets hired in a new department and gets a task to go figure out customer churn. And the this newbie says, well, I don't know how to do this stuff. Let me go see, is there a customer churn machine learning model that already exists and finds it and says, aha, uh-huh, I already have a base model. I'm going to go and derive my own model from it. So basically the quality is not defined by the user. The user expects certain quality. The implementation is by the producer. And if the user, the new user says, I don't like the quality, I need this, I need that. You had not figured it out. They communicated to the producer and the producer will then implement it.
2: Right, but I guess the challenge there though, I mean, historically is this idea that the customer knows how to express what they need and that they're actually hand, like a strong product manager and a product designer understand that you really have to take with a grain of salt a request that comes in because most problem requests are actually solutions the customer hands you a solution Hmm. and the problem with that is that you think if i just give them what they asked for they will be happy until you realize like i need a customer churn model and then you realize what this person's actually trying to do and as a data professional you might be like that's actually not going to help you because you didn't factor in these other things you thought you needed a churn model, but really what you're trying to do is X. This part of the product thing is to me what's foundationally missing because the making part is really easy. If you really understand the problem space and you understand what's it like to be the head of sales or an individual salesperson, if you know that piece, the building part is so much easier. But that to me is, is one thing I feel like that's missing in this whole data products conversation so much of the time is we're still not talking about that last mile piece which is really the highest value producty as i call it producty stuff you can be doing is that customer facing time to understand the need and i i don't know i'm, I'm kind of just riffing here and i want your opinion on it but that's what i feel like is kind of missing
0: okay so brian this is where the difference arises if i'm in it and I'm doing customer churn model, I have no idea what my business really needs. I'm just being told. I'm trying to translate my business requirements into my technical requirements and implement it. In fact, it takes so long to build a data mart that by the time I deliver the data mart, the requirements have already changed. So I want to go back to my previous point where because the data products are being built by the domain and there's a product owner, the product owner should understand. The product owner should have spent time in the sales team to understand what do my salespeople need? And so they have a better grasp over the business requirements, the quality aspects, and now they can can have the engineer build it because it's their own product and their own users. Now, let's say I've I've built a customer master and I'm in sales. I've got information about how much money the customers are spending, what their budgets are. I've got all of that, but my customer master is a data product that the marketing department wants to use. So the marketing department should not really be allowed to see the spent data, because that's, you know, uh, sensitive data. So, but the marketing department may want to say, I've got Qualtrics survey, I've got Marketo, I want to join with that. So I want to take the sales team's product and I want to create a derived data product for my team, which is marketing. Presumably, the data product owner in the marketing team understands pretty well what does the marketing team need and then translates it into the derived data product.
2: In this model, though, does that translation into the, the data product, I guess, that needs to be built, yeah. does that mean that they're writing up a spec or requirements document that then the, and the technical people will go and implement like a classic software, like, well, not necessarily a classic one in modern speak, but is that, is that how you're saying that works?
0: yeah it it does but the the technical uh, team member uh, ideally is in the marketing team so it's not like going to uh, an external team it is sitting in the team sorry you mean so
2: like that in that fictitious sales example then it's not just the data product owner for the sales organization that's actually either dotted line or literally being paid for out of that department the the whole product team is now the whole data product team is now sitting inside sales yes Correct. Oh, okay.
0: Yes. And and they they may not be directly part of the sales team, but they're being sent like... They're attached to it or assigned
2: to it or, yeah.
0: They're attached to it from the central team because the sales team does not feel comfortable uh, owning it. And there is, by the way, we're only talking about people and process, organizational and process uh, for this. From a technology point of view, what we are trying to do is standardize the technology And you know, one of, by the way, we haven't even mentioned the word data mesh because data mesh and data products, they don't always have to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I can build data products, but I don't need to go into do all of data mesh principles. But one of the data mesh principle is called self-service data infrastructure. What that means is that if I'm going to take this leap of faith and say the entire product team is sitting in the domain, and they're not experts at software development, the least I can do is give them self-service data infrastructure, which means a lot of my technology needs to be abstracted through things like data ops, single button, zero copy, clone, or snowflake. I have access to data single button and an IDE or an orchestration engine kicks in and it starts running the task. Maybe in future, this is an LLM that I can tell it to do things. It's coming, by the way, whether we are skeptics or not, but Gen AI is a whole new topic by itself. But my point is that, that all these things need to go hand in hand. We need to have the right organization. We need to have a set of processes. And then we need a simplified technology, which is standardized across different teams. So this way, we have the benefit of reusing the the same technology. Maybe it is Snowflake for storage, DBT for modeling, and so on. And the idea is that different teams should have the ability to bring their own analytical engine. Like some people, maybe one department may say, we are a bunch of SQL guys. Another department say, yeah, but we only like doing Python and the third team may uh, be API-based. But the underlying data infrastructure should have some common standards and easy-to-use data ops layer so that it reduces the time of developing data products inside of of the domains. Sure, sure.
2: That makes sense. In terms of, like, defining the ways the business is going to measure the value of these initiatives like if especially if like the sales team is paying for this thing that they i don't you know make up your whatever example you want whose job is it to create those metrics and to to measure the impact to know whether or not this box of cinnamon toast crunch actually like delighted it brought economic return we were able to to count that economic return whose job who does that work where does that where does that happen
0: I think that function should sit with the CDO. Why do I say this is if Kellogg's wants to know what their sales are, it's very easy. They can count how many boxes of special cave were sold, which markets are trending and so on. Same idea for data product. The CDO can say that I've got exact metrics on how many data products were being used. How often were they refreshed? Who is using them? And if they're not being used, then I should retire and save the cost. So these things can be very easily measured. And that is very different from the time when we used to create these uh, data marts and data warehouses. It's like there was no way to measure. There was no way for the CIO to go in front of the CFO and defend the $4 million budget. But now data products give us that opportunity. I actually
2: believe everything is quantifiable it's just a question of precision and i don't want to get way into to that and act like how accurate do you need the answer to be for this particular question that you're asking but that's another like i guess part of the reason i asked is like you you have some case studies in the book of some wins there but one thing i don't think i saw was any economic value attached to those wins like quote you know speeding up delivery for example and that that one's a pretty easy one because you can just like what's the cost of my engineering team or whatever. And then if it's hundred X faster, well, then it's, it's around a hundred X return on my development costs. You could just even right there, that's a rough estimate of what the economic value is, but I was curious, what do some successes look like in this space from your, your research that you did? Like what, what are some wins? How would we know if we're doing a good job with this? Like, how do we know, if I'm a leader and I'm trying to adopt this approach, like what are the signals and and what's it like on the other side?
0: so i was at kubecon conference this year a couple of uh, weeks ago and i ran into the intuit team members so they were telling me about data products. they have 900 data products i was blown away with what they're doing a lot of turbo tags quickbooks they're turning a lot of the analytics into into data products. The Intuit team told me that in a few years, you would not have an ability to go access raw data. It'll only be through data products. Talking about the economic value, this gets a bit tricky because companies don't want to share it. This is a very closely guarded secret. In fact, last year we were at Big Data London and we had a panel with two people from Roche who might be part of your data products uh, community, mm-hmm. Omar Kwaja and Paul Rankin. Omar is, yeah. Omar is. And he's been on the show as well. I see. So Omar actually talked about it. He says hi, by
2: the way. I told him we were talking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, awesome. Okay, great. So he actually even came up and he says... I forget the number, I, somehow 40 million is in, in my head. And then there was like, oh my God, no, no, no. We have to get uh, a company to to uh, make sure that th- that we are allowed to share some of these- Sanction that number. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. All oh, this is under embargo. You cannot do it. And I think now they are talking about the actual cost savings they have derived from doing data products. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some other companies, uh, Equifax is another one i don't have the exact number but travelers insurance there are so many companies this is no longer like generative ai right now as we are recording is still in a prototyping phase maybe in 2024 it'll go heavy duty production we are not in prototyping phase for data products for a lot of companies. They've already been experimenting for a year or two, and now they're actually using them in production. So we've crossed that, that tipping point uh, for data products. I do have to say that we still need to make sure that data products, we don't overcomplicate things because most organizations don't have data products. Most organizations are not even in the cloud. If you listen to what AWS says, they only think 15% of data is migrated into the cloud, which seems an awfully low number, but most of the data is still on premises. Most of the data is still not in being leveraged through data products. So this is going to be a long journey.
2: More heads in the clouds than data in the cloud is what you're saying?
0: (laughs) Yes, correct. Yes. Very well put. Yeah.
2: Where are all these uh, data product managers coming from? Like, uh, are they harvesting them? Are they training them? Are they stealing them from mature product organizations? Yeah. Where is the user experience, knowledge, qualification about how to fix experience problems coming from? Where do they get that?
0: Actually, it's, it's a lot of product management people. In fact, this, this is a very hot topic. How do you bring in the culture of product management into IT teams that have done projects? You know how we've done projects in the past? I have to go build, a, I've done a bunch of data warehouse implementations. We built a data warehouse and then uh, we get a request. Okay, there's a new project. Everybody roll off this project, move to this other new project. And then we just let it linger for eternity and we don't ever go back we just keep rebuilding and reusing so this the product management thinking is actually being through osmosis or training we are getting it from the software development team or from the physical products team
2: do you mean that they're having internal training yes between a digital product correct like if there's a functional product management i, I guess a software product management or a digital team if they're not a digital native business they come in and train the the new dpms yes effectively is that that's the model you see most happening
0: it's not mostly happening but in some cases it is in other cases they don't have a, a path they're like just this week what are the top three banks has reorged the entire organization for the cloud modernization mm-hmm. based on products. Have they trained their people on that journey? No, they have not. But they, they've recognized how important it is to take the product management approach. And it's not very difficult to guess which one, because I've already said one of the top three banks in the US. And how I know that there's a little bit of a gap is because I'm hearing it, that how do I train? How do I organize myself? So we don't have a a proper mature method of training dpms right now yeah i i agree
2: in what i you know particularly on the last mile side we're talking about data products that have interfaces that are supposed to be self-contained islands of value or you know effectively we're building applications that are data driven or they're primarily about decision support you know now we have gen ai the function of user experience seems to reside with the dpm largely so you have two major skill gaps to me, product management, which is its own beast, and that's a wide and shallow skill set with a lot of soft skill requirements, a lot of creative thinking, a lot of relationship building that has to happen. And then the user experience piece, which involves a lot of psychology, human factors, knowledge, design of interfaces, design of experiences, all of that. It's a ton of knowledge and I'm kind of, I'm just curious. And I guess I'm just, I'm rambling a little bit about where like a bank, if they're going to reorg the entire business, I'm always curious, well, what, how will you know that that org was better than the last org? And how will you measure the improvement there? And who is going to do all that work? Because the, you know, changing the org chart is a, it's a mental model of how things happen. And there's physical reporting lines and all this, but effectively, it's like, you still have the same people, the same technology, you're still dealing with the same kind of raw ingredients, unless you upskill, or you bring in new talent, you know, however you go about doing that. It feels like a lot of stuff to learn yeah. to have to put all that on you know, and I'm not saying it can't be done. The most important thing to me is a passion and an interest, particularly if you're a data scientist or you're an analytics person and you want to go into this space. Passion and interest is probably the most important thing that you actually care. Yeah. You want to build stuff that matters. You want to build for, for economic impact. You want your work to matter. But I. I do kind of wonder where these people are coming from because yeah. I don't hear people stealing them from software companies, for example. I don't see a lot of investment in user experience design, which is a, a well-established discipline to, to deal with these kind of friction problems. I don't see a lot of those in the wild in enterprise data teams or even in the data product model. It's, it's, I think it's growing. I think it's still slow maybe product management will come first and that will eventually follow. Cause this last mile is where everything tends to fall apart. It's still at the, when the rubber hits the road, why is the adoption low? Yeah, It continues to be low over and over. You keep hearing this all the time. I don't know. Maybe I'm in an echo chamber. Do you hear as low? Like, do you hear low adoption is still the challenge? Like yes, people don't use the stuff we made and we gave them what they wanted and they still don't pay attention or like, <laughs>
0: by the way low adoption is a problem that's not just limited to data products how long have we had data catalogs but they have low adoption so it's a common problem you know chat gpt no problem with low adoption you can write ask questions in english and it surprises you with its answers correct or incorrect you're still amazed <laughs> mostly wrong. yes so <laughs> so uh, The questions you are asking are are super valid. In fact, I am now very intrigued to dig deeper. I just want to mention that I have my own podcast channel on YouTube only. It's called It Depends. I had the chief data analytics and product officer of Equifax on my channel. Now, our topic was cloud migration. Nothing to do with data products, but it turned out he had so much to say about data products and he's done an amazing job. And he was saying, you know, without without data products, we could not have expanded Equifax as fast as we have. We have far more business solutions now. We have far more people. Even if we do m a we can bring them into the fold. So... If your listeners are interested, they can, and if you don't mind including the Please. the link yeah. for that, I, I can share with you. That's like the most memorable
2: consultant's podcast name, but I have to congrats. It depends. <laughs> it's so good. That's so good. Yes.
0: Thank you. <laughs> My entire life was like, as a consultant, every answer was, oh, it depends. And then you would just, you know, cop out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say one thing. Page 26 in this book. Oh, I thought you, I'll just read the quote for you. Okay. Yeah, I think some of our listeners probably are don't need to hear this. There's probably some that maybe they do. But you said data products liberate data by flipping the priorities, business value and use cases first, followed by infrastructure and data management. Traditionally, data platforms and data management have taken precedence over use cases. The flipping of intent Prioritization alone is enough to explain why data products are so effective in delivering business advantage. To me, this is totally obvious because I guess I, I don't know how you abstract out and build something that's gonna have any value if you don't know what people are gonna do with it. But I understand for a long time that's happened because it's like, well, theoretically, we need to put all this stuff in a data lake and then you know build all this infrastructure that's abstracted so it can be used for multiple different use cases. But so often what's missing is, well, what are the benchmark use cases, by which we would test that the abstracted thing that we built is actually enabling these benchmarks that we should never make worse. That's how I measure design of of applications for business use is what are the benchmark use cases, the most important or most highly used workflows, jobs to be done, etc. That's how you know whether the platform's working is that it enables those benchmarks to be constantly used and so I'm really glad that you talked about that. Yeah. for teams that need to hear this. Thank you that you can't start with abstracting out a giant plumbing infrastructure and then figure out faucets later. It doesn't work well. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, very, very well, well put. So, Brian, I'm coming from the big data space. Yeah. Just at the beginning, you said, "What does it even mean?" But in big data Hadoop world, we how did we start? We said, "Let's build all the pipelines to bring structured and unstructured data, everything into the data lake." Mm-hmm. And then we'll figure it out. Yeah. And you know, that did not go very well at all. Yeah. And that led to the whole like snowflakes of the world and big queries. And so, so that emphasis on technology first is a wrong approach. I tell people that I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but there are no technology projects. They're only business projects. Mm -hmm. Technology is an enabler. Right. You don't do technology for the sake of technology. You have to serve a a business cause. So let's start with that and keep that front and center. That's awesome. I want to kind of
2: give you the last word or see if there's a a question I should have asked you about that I that I didn't ask, and then we'll talk about where to get the book and and you. But any any final words or something I should have asked you?
0: You know, there's a whole uh, question now coming up about what is the conversational interface going to be on data products? Again, two new topics, two topics that are not mature, but that is going to happen. In fact, the way I see it is we are in this phase of, let's chat with our data. And I think that's so dangerous to put a chatbot, LLM directly on data. We have no idea what will happen uh, if we do that. But if we put it on top of a data product, which is curated and has accountability, Then we can control some of the security, privacy, quality, reduce hallucinations. We can do some of that. So I'm super excited to see where this space goes next year, which is an extension of data products into the conversational space.
2: Yeah, that should be exciting. Sanjeev, thank you so much from Sanjmo uh, Consulting. I just want to recognize your, the the book's called Data Products for Dummies. Yes. Brought to you by DataOps.live. Correct. Guy Adams is also one of your co-authors and and Justin Mullen, who's actually a member of our, our data product leadership community. So congrats on the book. Where do they get it?
0: (laughs) Yes. It's very easy. If you go to Mm DataOps.live slash data products for dummies. Okay. So just two things you have to remember. It's a very long word, but data products for dummies is where you can download a copy. And if we happen to meet at one of the conferences, I will sign it for you. If you have a physical copy. Cool, cool. Which we we bring to the conferences. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent.
2: That sounds great. And where can people follow you? Is there uh, LinkedIn is kind of where I have you in my head is kind of where you hang out.
0: Yes. I am almost hundred percent approachable through LinkedIn. I would like people to subscribe to my medium site. My medium site is very easy. My company name is Sanjmo, com. Okay. Excellent. And also they can subscribe to the YouTube. It depends podcast that we that make my day. Great.
2: Right, yeah, we'll put those
0: links in there. It's, Sanj- it's
2: S-A-N-J-M-O. So if you're looking up Sanjeev, that's uh, how to find that. And uh, Sanjeev, thank you so much. Congrats on, on the book here. Thanks for entertaining my, my questions here and it's been great <laughs> no to worries. chat with you.
0: Great questions, by the way. I have made my own notes. on go find out more about these things, you know. So thank you. Like I said earlier, we are dummies. At least I consider myself. Me too. Yeah. So thank you for this opportunity. Love it. All right. Brought to you by Cinnamon Toast Crunch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sanjua, (laughs) thanks. Thank you. for chatting. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com podcast.